she encouraged me to go and take ayahuasca for this podcast. It reshuffled a lot of things in my head. And basically the fundamental thing that happened to me, I think, was that I lost confidence in seeing through one specific paradigm. So there's the me on ayahuasca paradigm, and there's the me sober paradigm, and there's me after I've had a cup of coffee, and there's me after I haven't slept very well like today. These are all aspects of me. So why am I just prioritizing this one seat of consciousness within myself? I contain multitudes, etc., etc. Rebecca Fox, welcome to the metagame. Thank you for having me. So I'm really interested in speaking with you because you are a ritualist, which in a minute I'll ask you to define, but also you've dabbled in witchcraft and atheism. And so I wonder <laughs> if you can draw a thread between those three words and uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I grew up in, in England, as you can probably tell, uh, and my family were, as many British families are nowadays, um, just agnostic. Well, not even agnostic, um, just not interested in religion at all mm. and kind of, you know, that kind of status anxiety, desperately middle class type situation where there's, there's a slight like intellectual snobbery about anything that is vaguely spiritual or mm. um, religious in any way. Um, so, but me being me, I, I was looking for something more and um, also my childhood was a bit disrupted by various things. And so I had this kind of feeling of like, you know, like most teenagers do, not being in control, sort of, yeah, feeling a bit anxious. And I wanted to find sort of a place and a sort of a way of being in the world. And because it was the 90s, um, I stumbled along a con Wicca, which is like a neo-pagan religion. Um, mm. And I just got really into it, like more than the average teenage witch, I think. I was still considering myself a witch into my 20s. Um, it was my religion and I was quite serious about it. And then at some point I became disillusioned with it because I realized that the what they call the sacred history, which is the story of um, the idea that this witchcraft practice and the way that it's enacted today by modern Wiccans um, is sort of continued on from the Stone Age, basically, mm. which is what really attracted me because I was like a nerd for any, anything Neolithic and that sense of belonging in the landscape and belonging to a tradition that's existed for that long, that was what drew me to Wicca in the first place. And then when I found out that it wasn't quite true and it had kind of been sort of a mishmash of Western occultism and, you know, some imaginative ideas from this guy called Gerald Gardner in like the 40s or something. So it all fell down around me and I decided I had to, this is about the same time I'm finishing up my postgraduate work and going out into the world and thinking I better get serious about life. Um, mm. <laughs> and serious for me meant uh, educating myself on critical thinking, which led to atheism and skepticism and a really like hardline materialist, rationalist approach to the world, which lasted till uh, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just sort of, I'm still, I'm still figuring out exactly who I am. Um, if, I, if I'm not wedded to that particular paradigm, and yeah, I can't really go back to believing the things naively that I used to believe when I was younger. So I'm I'm agnostic. Uh, I consider myself a radical agnostic, like from the roots, radical. Um, and I like playing with the technologies that I used to play with as a witch. And that's ritual. That is the technology of ritual. And it's just a delightful area of experimentation because my other whole thing is that I'm an artist. 
So mm-hmm. I, I consider ritual an art form and it's a fun art form to play with for me. So, yeah. Yeah. So the reason why I ask that is because from, from what I've seen of your work online, and I was saying this before we hit record, I think you're uniquely well positioned to basically act as a, as a shamanic character for modern people. <laughs> Because, you know, you, you've had this history with actual like pagan shamanic practice. Um, and you, you said you, you took it seriously and you also are, are trained in critical thinking and have had that period of, of disillusionment and disenfranchisement or disenchantment that a lot of modern people just assume is the norm. And then you come back to this like place where you're probably more comfortable with uncertainty than most people. And from that place, you're able to kind of pull in these psycho-spiritual technologies and, and LARP them into, into something meaningful. And maybe it's more than just LARPing, but that's, I, I mean, LARPing like in a, in a good way. Yeah, no, LARPing is a really interesting word. I use it myself sometimes to describe ritual. Um, I think, I think the reason why it feels so right to me but then also so wrong, and that's that's what's so delightful about it. So mm. right, but so wrong, um, is that I think um, inherent in when you when you step into a ritual situation, any kind of ritual situation, I think, and I'm a bit of a evangelical agnostic, so I guess I would say mm. this. But it's like my perspective is that agnosticism is kind of like a prerequisite for being in ritual space. Because like mm. if you're doing um, communion, like taking Eucharist at church, you can you could sort of frame that as uh, a literal action, like I'm literally drinking the blood of Christ. I don't think many people do that. Or you could frame that as just a metaphor. But I think what mm. most people do when they're engaging in ritual is shuttle between those two paradigms. And that is what creates the sort of weird, like surreal, kind of out of this world this world and the normal way of thinking situation that you're doing this cognitive task of going, it's real, it's a metaphor, it's real, it's a metaphor, like yeah. oscillating. And I think that's true in most ritual situations. And like, if you look at the anthropological ritual, uh, ritual literature, it's hard to say, <laughs> um, you see, like they talk about the idea of defining ritual as something that has no, like, because they're the old school, like 19th century anthropologists are like looking at what tribal people do, what they would call tribal people doing and saying that's a ritual, that's not a ritual. And how they make that definition is they say, um, if it has a practical purpose, it's not a ritual. Like if I'm grinding up grain to make bread, that's not a ritual. That's just like a Mm. practical thing that I'm doing. But if they're doing something that doesn't seem to have any practical meaning, then that is a candidate for ritual. So if you literally believe that what you're doing is working in the kind of like, when I say working, I mean like in the sort of scientific materialist paradigm, this is a thing that I'm doing to achieve a certain goal and I believe right. it's working. It's kind of not a ritual anymore. So there has to be yeah. an element, do you get what I'm saying? There has to be an element of like ambiguity for even to classify as a ritual according to a, you know, a certain approach to ritual studies. So anyway, the point of uncertainty and ambiguity, I think it's key. It's like, that's where you have to start from if you're gonna engage in ritual practice. And that's where I didn't start from as a teenager, as a teenager, which I just thought it was all real. Right, right. That's it. Yeah. The, um, so coming back come to, to it mind. now. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So um, the what we described is kind of like the practical outcome approach, where you're doing something. You know, you're you're uh, you're doing agriculture so you can get food or whatever. Mm. It's mechanistic, and and there's like a clear outcome. Um, and then the ritual, the words that come to mind for ritual is uh, uh, aporia, which is uh, 
that state of like unknowingness that Socrates would induce through like his annoying questions. And then uh, <laughs> liminality. And this is a word that's like thrown a lot, uh, thrown around a lot, but basically a ritual puts you in this liminal space, which is what came to mind when you were saying people are oscillating with taking it literally or not, or metaphorically or literally. And when you do that, um, you, you enter an openness and out of that openness, because you don't know what's going to come up next, or you're, you're actually like genuinely agnostic in a deep sense, that, that is the best foundation for transformation. And that's why rituals can be very powerful. But then there's like this paradox where if you're just doing it mechanistically to get some sort of outcome, mm -hmm. then you're probably not going to induce the liminality. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what, um, at least from my reading, I'm not super into Christianity, but I'm trying to get a grasp on their ritual structure for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, and I think that's what Christians, like the idea of just going through the motions would call sacrilege. If it, a, mm. a ritual without the commitment and the belief behind it is, and it's interesting because I always felt kind of strange about the idea of, um, you know, friends of mine who are godparents who are atheists. And I was like, that's a bit odd. I'm not sure. No one's asked me, thank goodness. Um, but I don't know if I feel comfortable doing that because it's like, it, you're just going through the motions. And even though it's not my religion that I would be sacralizing, that's a word today. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel weird about it. And that actually brings me around to that, um, the sort of the definition of ritual question, which is always hanging over any of these conversations. And it's a horrible question. And I know you're going to ask it. So I'm just going to yeah. cut to the chase and say, this is what I've got. Um, I think that what's important, or one of the many things that's important about ritual is that it brings three elements together. And that's an action, so like words, movements, whatever, um, thoughts, so whatever you're thinking at that time, and then a greater meaning. And the greater meaning would be mm. the mythos. So in the example of the communion, um, the action would be drinking the wine, the thought would be, I'm drinking the blood of Christ, or whatever the thought's going through your head. And then the mythos would be all that pertains to the Bible and that whole mythical world of Christianity. Um, so mm. when you're saying going through the motions, I'm, I might be tempted to say, if you're just going through the motions and you don't have the thought and the meaning element, is it even a ritual, mate? Like, mm -mm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think you can. So, you know, there, there's a, there's rituals from different religions and worldviews that if you were to ask me, I, I'd say I don't really believe in them. Mm. But I can see myself uh, performatively, like acting in the moment, acting out the ritual with just enough agnosticism you know, I could be like, I don't really know. Like, maybe, maybe this is true. You know, maybe this, yeah. this, this, and, and I think in that moment, it, it's no longer sacrilege because there is just the right amount of earnestness and, and openness to the transcendent. And yes, this, this yeah. thing of being open to the transcendent, I want to like tie it in with another thing you mentioned, uh, just for context for people. So, so they understand where you're coming from. You're also an artist and you've, you've written and, um, and uh, illustrated, drawn yeah, uh, yeah. a couple graphic novels. Mm -hmm. And the way I think about art, and I have a lot of artist friends, is that is a practice where true art is you're, you're open to the transcendent. You know, you're having some sort of experience where you're encountering the source of creativity. And that can be a very transcendent spiritual experience. So I'm curious, do you bring the, the insights and the, the wisdom you have from your life as a ritualist to your life as an artist or your practice as an artist? Yeah, I do now. Um, I didn't for a long time. I've been um, drawing since I was a kid. I just love it. Um, I I love that. Um, and it's, it's, it's so perfect. I don't know why it didn't occur to me before that it was um, that I could ritualize my drawing practice, um, but it didn't until recently. 
Um, because you go into a kind of altered state when you draw. Because you're, mm-hmm. I mean, depending on how you draw, obviously. But the way that I was taught to draw was um, focusing on light and shade. So you're, you're no longer seeing shapes and, you know, like that's the window, that's the wall. You're just seeing, oh, that's a, that's an area of lightness, that's an area of darkness. Um, very tonal. I actually don't generally draw that way. I'm much more line work now. But that's how, so, and to shift into that way of seeing is entering what feels like an altered state. And if I go and work in the studio and then I um, walk out onto the streets of downtown Brighton after a long mm. life drawing session or whatever, um, I feel slightly like like I don't want to drive straight away. Like, <laughs> no matter how kilter, like I'm seeing things wrong and I'm, I'm like looking at the top of the lamppost and judging how far it is from there to here. And like, I'm just seeing like an artist, I'm in a different mode of being. Um, so that's one of the things that I love about art and about creating art and specifically about life drawing. Um, by which I mean just drawing anything live, not necessarily naked people, preferably naked people, obviously, that's everyone's preference, but anything just live in front of me, Uh, because you get lost in that moment. Um, But actually making a ritual practice hasn't happened until this weird thing that happened to me when um, I sort of moved away from skepticism and atheism and into whatever I'm into now. Um, Mm. And then I've just been, because I've been reading so much about the the literature around ritual and I've just been and I've thought well what in my life can't I ritualize so art was up for grabs and it's become a much much richer practice when I've started to think about things like um I actually can't think of things oh I have an example um I have an example I don't think you can see it very well I don't I don't really want to do a show and tell it's a bit weird isn't it well <laughs> but I've been... you're welcome to if you feel inclined <laughs> Okay, let me just grab this and I'll show you a ritual art piece that I created. So I've been researching, um, as I say, I've been trying to understand Christianity a bit more. So I've been researching what that's all about and where it comes from. Um, and you can't help but come across this trope of the dying and returning God, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's Christianity's whole big thing. It's their big deal right now. Uh, so looking into that and the history of that and the, the, the roots of that, and I come across Dionysus. And I'm like, what's this dude mm-hmm. Dionysus all about? getting into reading as much as I can about the rites of Eleusius, all that stuff, like trying to understand ritually how people encountered this, I mean, to me, what seems like an archetype, but you know, whatever. Um, so it seems like Dionysus is a aggregate deity, as many of them are, from several different places. And one of his predecessors is called Sabius. Um, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and there's these amazing artifacts called Hands of Sabius, uh, mm. which are these, these sort of model hands, you can give it a Google and find them. Um, and I thought to really understand, and no one knows what they were used for, what the whole deal with them was. They're just these leftover relics. Um, so I thought to understand Dionysus, I need to understand this guy Sabius. And to do that as an artist, I need to recreate one of these things. And so that's mm. what I did. Um, and I made my own, <laughs> yeah, the welcome to show and tell. Oh, I wow, made my own. <laughs> Yeah, this is what they're seriously like. They have a snake. Um, sorry for people who are just listening. Um, it's a hand. It's about the size of a human male hand. It's actually made of clay, but I finished it to try and make it look metal. I don't know. I shouldn't have told you that and just asked you what you thought it was made yeah, of. Yeah, it looked like bronze to me. <laughs> yeah, that's what I went for. Um, a little pine cone on the thumb, two fingers raised, two down. Um, that's classic. That's how it always is. And it's always the, um, the right hand. Uh, the first one I made was a left hand. I had to chuck it out because I was like, no, that's not good. Um, and they have these strange compo- compartment here. 
uh, again, who knows what was put in their offerings or whatever. I like to keep a dice in there because I feel there's something about fate and about randomness. Yeah. But um, yeah, creating this and other pieces like this, I put on music that's relevant to it. I meditate before I get started. I think about mm -hmm. the themes um, and I put myself in that headspace whilst I create the artifact. And what happens, which is super cool, is well, do you know, like, do you ever listen to podcasts whilst you're walking around town? Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you walk the same way again and you see a post mm -hmm. box or whatever it is. And you remember the thing that was said in the post, in the podcast when you last walked through that. Yeah. You anchor it with these uh, physical yeah. cues. It's so surreal because I do that all the time. So my landscape is just like little bits of information and little people's voices. Your voice might just come into my head because I'm like, yeah. hey, listen to Daniel's podcast when I was walking by this trigger. So that's exactly what's happened. It's anchored into this, all the thoughts and feelings and emotions that were going on in me whilst, and that is, happens with all artwork, but I never tried to do it in that kind of focused way until the last two years, as I said, when I've gone a bit strange. Wow. So... <laughs> So yeah, that's yeah. I mean, I I have other I have lots of examples, but that one just happened to be on the table behind me. Um, and and it's a uh, it's a very beautiful example for for those people who are just listening and don't know this. The metagame is also on YouTube, so you can uh, you can check out the the visuals um, and see what this uh, this artifact looks yeah, like. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a strange looking item. Um, and I do think that it helps me to understand things more. To um, to come at them from different directions instead of yeah. just just coming at something from a um, you know like reading about something and then processing the facts and writing them down and trying to memorize them um yes like thrusting your brain into a different mode of perception and then saying well what do you make of this artistic part of the brain yeah yeah, yeah or um to use so john verbeke was on uh, a little while ago and he talked about the four different ways of knowing and so some of the listeners might be familiar with this, but um, in the modern world, we are overly tuned to language and uh, he calls this propositional mode. So you just make sense of the world through statements of belief. Yes. But that's only just one way of knowing. That's only one way of interacting with reality. But there's also the perspectival mode, which is when you look at the world from the perspective of somebody else. So I can kind of imagine right now through theory of mind what your experience is like, and that's like a shift in perspective. But I can also do that with like inanimate objects in your in your room. I can imagine what the world looks like from the perspective of that Rorschach painting um, behind yes. you. So it's a perspectival mode. And then there's a procedural, which is kind of like riding a bike. Um, you don't ride a bike with uh, bits of language that run subroutines. It's like embodied. Your, your body's involved in that physical gesture. And then there, there's this more mysterious one, which is participatory, which has to do with your relationship with a, with a space. Uh, it's the agent arena fit. So one way I like to describe this is um, if you go to a party and uh, you feel uncomfortable at the party, then your participatory did, yeah. knowing, yeah, <laughs> usually in the you know, first 15 minutes or something needs mm -hmm. to happen before you find a good agent arena fit at, at the party. But I think what's cool is ritual... Um, and this is just another way to, to shine light on this thing. Ritual can be the practice of activating all those modes of knowing yeah. when it comes to uh, an intent uh, or a creation or anything that you're, you're trying to explore, some sort of piece of reality that you're trying to make sense of. And I think, um, I think the example of, uh, of art is a really good one because 
now that that hand that you created is imbued with all sorts of other mental and physical um, associations. Mm. The funny thing with ritual artifacts like that, though, is that they do it does wear off. Like the yeah. the connection wears off, and uh, and and that's why I was like um, umming and ahhing about whether to show it to you because now now it's got this memory in it. That's right. In it. That's right. And eventually, if enough people see it, it will become just another object in my home. I have um, I was talking to a ritual client the other day about what to do with artifacts that they use as part of their ritual practice. Um, and I, I mean, it's different for different people, but I think for a lot of people, it's quite wise to keep these things in a shoebox and yes. only bring them out when you're in that state of mind. So they don't get all the like associations and memories like clouding the actual intent of the piece. Um, yeah. If you like, yeah, this is a if you have, have a ritual knife, you don't want to use it to chop carrots. That's kind of like, yes, <laughs> confuses exactly. well, your brain. I think this is a good jumping off point into uh, a question what is what is sacredness? What does it mean for something to be sacred mm -hmm. versus profane? Yeah, I can see why you asked that because I mean, literally, set apart is the answer, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Sacred means set apart, and that's exactly what I'm suggesting that you should do with objects. Um, I don't know because I think sometimes. I mean, it's obviously, it's not a thing that's inherent. Oh, well, maybe not obviously. See, I'm talking like an atheist again. It's obviously something that's not inherent in the world. That would be ridiculous. It's all in our minds. <laughs> that's what I was just about to say. Um, but from my perspective, let's just say, from from the way I'm looking at it right now, it seems to be something like a, uh, something that arises, sacredness is something that arises in between me and the object that I'm interacting with, or the, I mean, I'm saying object just for ease it could be a moment it could be a memory it could be anything couldn't it but say it's an object it's something that's coming between like it can't happen on its own like i can't something there has to be something to be sacred i don't think it ab exists like abstract of a thing to be anchored to and, it, mm -hmm. and again this is just my experience but and, and i i have there are lots of practices in um sort of occultism and Western esotericism, which you could describe as processes of making something sacred, um, which kind of do work. Like you can take a thing and you can focus on it and you can you can get yourself into the headspace where whenever you perceive that object, you get that feeling of sacredness. But then there's also this feeling of sacredness. And I'm just, I'm just describing feelings because I think trying mm -hmm. to define it in like a necessary and sufficient criteria is kind of like a a fool's errand, um, at least with my cognitive abilities. Um, I, there's also this like emergent sacredness that just like hits me like a mm. when I'm out and about and I see, and it's always nature for me because I'm kind of like a, a nature lover. I see, you know, the light hits like right now in the autumn um, and the gold now, you know, and the light just comes yeah. in at that angle. And there's something that happens in me physically. Like I feel tingly and even just thinking about it, I start to feel the beginnings of a sort of tingly sensation in my body. And I feel like that is, that seems like similar to sacredness, if not the same thing. But that's not something I created. That's something that just mm -hmm. happened to me. So yeah, I don't know. It's very mysterious, but I feel quite um, belligerent about the fact that I'm entitled to it. Because for a long time, I didn't feel entitled to it. Because I thought as an atheist, as a skeptic, as someone, because I wasn't just like, you know, I wasn't just privately an atheist and skeptic. I was going around talking about it and telling everyone else right, they right. should be too. 
<laughs> in a way some people might have labeled obnoxious <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so i feel now like i'm like you can't stop me having this this is this amazing feeling that's part of being human and even if i can't define it properly and i don't have like the metaphysics to explain what's going on here um i can tell that it's enriching my life uh, yes, and it yeah. would be foolish to disregard it so yeah, yeah. And i think the metaphysics are not necessary or sufficient it's funny um <laughs> The example that popped into my mind, and this might help with people's uh, pattern recognition, is like a really weird personal example. But when I was thinking of the dichotomy of sacred and profane is thinking back to my early 20s when uh, I'd go out with, uh, with my guy friends and we'd go to a bar or something and I'd meet a girl. And then uh, I'd go home with her. And then the next day, my friends would be like, yo, so what happened? You know, like, did you, did you sleep with her or anything like that? And you want to, you want to like... Um, signal your your like prowess and your status in front of your male friends so maybe you'll like mm -hmm. you'll tell like okay. what happened you know you'll 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 talk about the the experience and I, I i noticed when i would do that i'd give into the temptation i'd feel so bad afterwards I'd, I'd feel this like weird knot in my chest and after you know that happened a couple times i remember giving myself in my early 20s like this like little principle i said um never talk about sex with anyone who wasn't there <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if that's um, actually like a good principle, but I, I know why it, it emerged. And it was that something about that personal experience I had with someone was, was sacred. And then as soon as I talked about it, it turned into something profane. And I think everybody kind of knows this. There's like things in life where you almost like perjure your soul as soon as you start to put it into words or something changes yes. when, when you bring other people into it that shouldn't be brought into it. And there's a certain amount of discernment that you need in order to, to keep those boundaries um, tight. And sometimes you'll, you'll just accidentally, earnestly um, profane something that's sacred, and then you should learn that lesson and then next time keep it sacred. But yeah, that, that's the example that popped into my head. Yeah, sure no, that's a great others. example. I feel like, because when you're doing that with your bros, you're re-accessing those memories and seeing them through from bro vision. Yeah, and yeah. like you, you can't oh, bring God. Eurovision into the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do that. Uh, but, and then, and then that memory has been like has been coloured, has been, and you can never get it back. You can't get back the original. I mean, obviously, yeah. every time we remember something, we're reaccessing and changing details. But shifting a whole perspective from intimate encounter to guys at the pub is very different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel like sometimes I can be a bit. Um, it almost feels superstitious. Mm -hmm. The way I like stop myself from thinking certain things in certain ways because I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to put that through that lens. That's an inappropriate mm -hmm. lens for it. Um, but I think, I think it's just, yeah, I think it's wise. I think you could probably go a bit too far and just like be like this completely compartmentalized because there has to yeah. be some mixing of the sacred and profane because that's what makes life interesting and that's what I mean. That's kind of like, I mean, if you want to get super esoteric about it, that's you know, that's Eros Gamos. That's the bringing together of you know. The two, the two big energies that everyone's working with all the time, like the, you know, I mean, what would you call it? Chaos and order, um, mm. fate and uh, will, like the two, mm. uh, the sacred and the profane, I feel like, I mean, maybe not perfectly map onto those concepts, but there's something about the interplay between those dualities that is really beautiful and important, but also the, you have to preserve them as individuals. It's a hard game. Being a human yeah, being. Yeah. Well, it, what immediately came to, not, to mind was uh, 
Dionysus and Apollo coming back to um, yes oh my god yes that's one of yeah. the one of the frames through which I'm seeing that whole chaos and order thing yeah and the, like that Nietzschean stuff yeah 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 which um <laughs> which I'd love to dive into but I also um have a lingering curiosity which is you said that you had a point of departure from the skeptic uh atheist orientation to I don't know if this is your words or mine, but radical agnosticism. Was there was there a moment? Was there some event in your life, or was it this gradual <laughs> unfolding that led you here? Uh, yeah, there kind of was a moment. Um, uh, mm. So I was doing this podcast called The Super and the Skeptic, um, mm-hmm. where um, me and my friend, really good friend, um, very, still very close friend, um, we did it for a few years, and it was very intense. Uh, we every month or so we got together and went and did some kind of experience. So we did like, we went to hang out with thalamites. We did Mm. holotropic breathing. We went to see mediums. We did all that stuff. And then we got together on the podcast to discuss it from two completely different perspectives. And that was kind of our, you know, our bit, um, Mm -hmm. me playing the skeptic, um, and her playing the seeker. She's an astrologer now. She became like, after we finished the podcast, she moved on and her whole thing is astrology, which is a fascinating discipline. Um, and at like a beautiful language in its own right. Anyway, I love her, she's amazing. But um, one thing I don't love her so much for <laughs> is that she encouraged me to go and take ayahuasca um, uh. as part for this podcast. Um, and oh, actually, I probably love her for that too because it reshuffled a lot of things in my head. And basically um, it left me with this, like it's, it's silly to, to describe trips as any kind of, you know, cause mm-hmm. everyone knows everyone knows what it's like to trip um but what like the fundamental thing that happened to me i think was that i lost confidence in the seeing through one specific um paradigm and i was like okay so there's the me on ayahuasca paradigm and there's the me sober paradigm and there's me after i've had a cup of coffee and there's me after i haven't slept very well like today the like these are all aspects of me so why am i just prioritizing this one like apollyon apollyon how would you say that? Apollonian. 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 I got there. <laughs> yeah, so why am I prioritizing that one um, seat of consciousness within myself? I contain multitudes, et cetera, et cetera. And then I just started sort of opening up and 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 actually really engaging with that as a possibility and trying to figure out how that worked with um, still considering myself kind of like a critical thinker, I guess, mm-hmm. um, but not with any capital letters involved. It's like... Yeah. Uh, so that, that was the, that was the big shift. It really was, it was all drugs. Um, I don't advise them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and then after that, I just started it, something, something changed in me and we carried on doing the podcast. And every time we spoke about one of the strange things we'd done, little bits and bobs shifted around in my brain until I got to this place of radical agnosticism, um, yeah. which is super uncomfortable place to be because certainty is really tidy and neat and easy. <laughs> Uh, but I don't know. I think maybe being uncomfortable is good. At least it's good for me. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe it's good for everyone yeah, to some degree. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it actually, um, it, it resonates with a personal experience of mine as well. I don't think drugs or psychedelics were my particular inflection point into this similar state, which I, I, I vibe with this idea of radical agnosticism. Um, I think for me, it, it so I was raised a Christian and I think the disillusionment with Christianity was its own kind of initial 
uh, existential trauma that kind of puts you in this state of, of aporia and then you're piecing your life back together again. But I also had another one um, about five years ago now when I took 6.4 grams of mushrooms on an empty stomach without any kind of like, I don't know, support or plan or, or whatever. That sounds and like fun. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, it, <laughs> it took me to another planet basically. And um, you, after a trip like that, you're, you're left with a choice. Like you can compartmentalize that insane experience, which is the most potent or meaningful experience you've ever had in your life. And then you can put it back on the shelf and create some concepts or something, or say that it's like, you know, just an illusion or neurons firing a certain way in your brain. Or you can take it seriously. And what you realize is, and you said it very well, there's a multitude of perspectives on reality. And uh, why is it that you're privileging the one that you find yourself in, in mm. on, on a daily basis? And then you start to realize the only reason why you find yourself in a, a default perspective is because of a bunch of contingent things. Like your, the time that you were born, you know, your, your, your culture, uh, your job. Um, your family, the friends that you're around. And you start to realize that actually all these things, if you tweak these dials, they also create changes in your perspective that are akin to the 6.4 grams of mushrooms, but they're just a lot more subtle. And your, your perception is not attuned to those changes and your memory is not good enough to realize how different your life is now, how different your perspective is now than it was two years ago when you had those different friends or that different job, or you weren't aware of what was going on and, you know, the, the global economy and all this stuff. So yeah, you end up in this state that's very, very uncomfortable where, um, it's almost like you're falling and there's, there's nothing to hold on to. Yeah. Falling. I, I, that's a really good way to put it. Um, it's, and it's also like this, um, weird feedback loop you get into with the, with the language that you've used to describe yourself and present yourself to the world mm -hmm. where you're like, Oh, that, that seems like the right word to describe me. I'll, I'll, I'll put that on my Twitter bio or whatever. Um, I'll right. tell I'll tell people that when I shake their hands, um, and then and then you can't help but let that word define you and all the sort of unsaid things, the the stink that you weren't even aware was on that word comes to stick to you as well. And I was like, yeah, it's very strange. I think it's I think it's definitely heightened by the way that we sort of present ourselves and package ourselves, even if you're not like. Um, even if you're not out there on the internet, even if you don't have, like, you still, you're still sort of required, like you're sort of nudged into give, defining yourself down into a bunch of keywords that, you know, mm -hmm. whatever advertisers can use to pinpoint you and sell you the right things, show you the right ads. Um, and I think that has a real effect on the way we think about ourselves. Um, yeah, and that, that was a big, obviously, in my particular situation, because I was coming from this podcast where I literally, that was the name of the podcast, I was a skeptic. Mm. Um, that that had kind of, there's a weird sort of psychedelic effect that words have and labels have. And that's one of the things I find, I keep going back to now in ritual work, is the power of language. And spells. like, you can, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Spells, spelling. <laughs> um yeah, and grammar, like grammar, grimoire, these words are connected for a reason because mm. words have that power that they can, they can influence our consciousness um, and and sort of direct us in ways that we do or don't want to go and direct other people too. So, yeah, I know I like, I, I'm not someone who's super careful with my words, as you may have noticed. I kind of like, I just go for it. Um, but like, you know, I, I, do, I disagree actually. 
I think you probably don't think you're careful with your words, but um, so I'll just say this kind of like an intuitive experience of you. And I, I have this uh, with different people that sometimes when people speak, you feel that they're connected to the words that they're using. You know, there's like mm. a, there's like a, there's a little more gravitas to the way that people who take their words seriously, quote unquote, have and when they speak. And uh, I actually think you, you have that because the way the words are coming out, they all feel like they, they feel very real. They feel very connected. And then sometimes you talk to somebody and it feels like the words are just coming from something else. You know, they're not really aware of what's actually speaking, but it's, it's not that. Yeah. And so I know what you mean when you say you're not, you're not careful with your words, but I think uh, I would put it differently. Yeah, I, I, I guess what I mean is um, I have this kind of philosophy. Um, I was talking to my, my brother is a philosopher and a very like, um, uh, you know, like a kind of Western rationalist, um, mm. careful uh, person um, with his words and so forth. And uh, he interrupted me when we were having a conversation. We were talking about aesthetics and art. And I said something about something being beautiful. And he was like, oh, I think we should just take a moment here to really think about that word beauty and what it means, because I'm not sure we're using it in the same way. And blah, 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 blah. I'm just trying to get me to pin down my definition of beauty, which is a wonderful, fun treat to enjoy <laughs> with my brother because I love defining words and stuff. But I was feeling stroppy and, you know, like an older sister at that moment. So I was like, well, actually, I think that this kind of passing of the world and like having discrete exact labels, you're trying to use that as a way, as, as is your tradition, and of course, um, to really understand the world better by being very clear. And you think that, you know, um, you see people using language in the way I am and you think it's sloppy. But mm. I put it to you that the world is sloppy. And if your language yeah. is tidy, it can't represent the world because the world isn't tidy. So I think like just letting the words kind of spill out and sometimes strange little metaphors pop up and strange things coming out, that, I mean, I'm just making an excuse for my own sloppy thinking and trying to start liking yeah. it with my brother here. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, but yeah, I think that's important. And I think it's important in ritual as well. And I have this whole like, beef um it's a completely one-sided beef because they don't know i exist but there's mm. lots of people out there ritual designers um who are very um structured and measured uh, everything they put in you know they could explain to you um oh we're putting that in because we need to lift up the endorphins at this moment in the ritual and like they have the whole kind of scientific explanation for what they're doing um and, which is wonderful and great and i'm sure their rituals work beautifully but um Maybe beautiful is in the world. Maybe their rituals are efficient, but I like mm. to think <laughs> that you're more likely to create beauty if you do it in a more artistic, weird way, because rituals are supposed to be multivalent. They're supposed to be accessible to all sorts of interpretations. And if you have this very clear vision of what you're going to do, it actually makes me think of you and your productivity coaching, having this very mm. clear vision of what you're going to do and then aligning everything so it comes to this point so you can achieve this thing, which is great for getting shit done. But if you want to have like that rich, transcendent, slightly weird experience, you need some mystery in there. And I think the mm -hmm. mystery comes from those weird, like, I don't know why I use that word. I don't know why it seems right that they should have to go and collect rainwater to do this ritual, but it does seem right. And so I'm going to put it in there. And like, and who knows, who knows exactly what is having what effect in people's brains. But I think that's what makes the difference between what I call a ritual designer and a ritualist. It's like the difference between a graphic mm. designer and an artist. Um, and I don't know whether this makes me sound pretentious. Um, I... Shots fired. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just, it's just something I say because I think I, like it occurred to me and I say it. I don't think it's necessarily like, 
yeah, I love ritual designers. They're all brilliant. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I do think there's a difference um, between that kind of instrumental ritual and more like what I do, which is I get on the phone with someone and I talk to them about their life and then I sit with that and then something comes to me, which is a response that I think Mm -hmm. I create a piece of art based on our our interaction. That's what I do. and okay, so fair enough, I am, you know, I am familiar with the literature around psychology and, you know, blah, 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 and like how ritual works and stuff. It's not like I'm completely operating blind, but that's not, I'm not like planning out every movement in relation. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, well, I'm this, rambling. This maps, <laughs> on, uh, this maps on to uh, Apollo and, and Dionysus again. Um, and, mm. you know, the, the ritual designer as as I'm parsing what you're saying, it's kind of like the naive Apollonian that, mm. or, or even your, your brother, if, uh, if he's always playing that game of semantic correctness, mm. which is a great game and pe- more people should do it. And I think, uh, it's value is self-evident, but if, if that's the only game that you're playing, then you fall into this like naive Apollonian approach to life and life isn't Apollonian. Uh, like basically the way I understand these, this dichotomy is, um, like di- the Dionysian energy is that chaotic, uh, chthonic like life force, and I was talking to a, a Nietzschean vitalist a couple podcast Ooh. episodes ago, and he was talking about how Beethoven, although a classical musician, so Apollonian, you know, very structured, refined, you know, like like laser focused, um, you know, this brilliant, intelligent intelligence in the in the music. Although it's like classical music, it's full of Dionysian energy. So it's it's like a synthesis in a way. Like you listen to uh, like Beethoven, there's so much muscularity and an aggression that's like very viscerally aware sonically in the music. And I think that's actually the, the appropriate progression because if you forget the Dionysian, then you'll you end up. And this comes to one of the questions I want to ask you. You end up. Um, with a loss of vitality, I think you, you know you're, yeah. you're you're disconnected from the source of of energy, of libidinal energy, of mystery, of of you know chaos, and and also creative energy. And so, a ritualist, to use your term, or and, and again, I, I notice this in in your work. I, I think that kind of openness to wildness is also a gateway for modern people to reconnect with. Uh, with their bodies and also their their latent vitality, and so I'm curious. Yeah. Um, first, if you want to respond to anything I said, there, go for it. But how do you think of of vitality and um, what sort of language and practices do you have around cultivating it? Mm, okay. Um, so I have been swept up in this this wave of talking about thumos that everyone's. Mm-hmm. Everyone in our little corner of the internet has been swept up in. Um, and shortly before uh, I started seeing a lot of videos about it, I was talking to a client who basically had this problem where he was not connecting to his life force fully, just only a bit flat, um, like everyone's been there. Uh, and I was trying to think of a ritual that would help him to like, the equivalent of, um, this is this is how I said it to him. I don't know if this is a, a good way to say it, but I want to, you know, like when you're, you're really tired and you've had a few days, I've just been like, oh, and then you're like, I'm ready for a nice hot bath. That's what I need. And you're like, planet, that's, this is, and I'm thinking of this because this is exactly what mm. I'm planning to do after we finish speaking. Um, so it's like, 
I, so and like say that happens every three or four days and then I'm reset and I'm good and I'm like chill again and all is well. So I wanted to give him something like that that would work for reinvigorating him and like getting him his thumos and his eros flowing and going mm. and going back together. Um, and and so that's when I started thinking in those terms before, I guess I thought more about like veriditas, um, which is which is beautiful, amazing way to think about this stuff because it, it's more, it's less personal. Although the more I read about Thuma, Thumos, I'm thinking that could actually be like a transpersonal phenomena. But uh, Veriditas is like, well, at least where I came across it, it's in the work of Hildegard von Bingen, who's like this, uh, oh God, I don't know, 14th century <laughs> abbess, uh, ran a monastery and like, in modern day Germany, I think, or maybe just on the border of Germany, what would be Germany now. And she saw um, this kind of shimmering web of energy over everything. And she mm. drew it and she sang a bunch of amazing music. Um, and she tried wow. to create the the feeling of that in her music. And this really spoke to me because of that experience I have at Golden Hour, where I'm like, the light hits just right. And I yeah. literally feel tingles in my skin. And like, that's, that's Veriditas. Obviously, Veriditas being like, green, growing, vital, life force, all that stuff. So we're just thinking about it like that. And that's that's how that would be like as close to a practice as I have for summoning Veriditas would be uh, something I do quite a lot in the summertime, which is, uh, oh, it's, it's funny talking about your personal practice because it, it is personal, but actually I mm. think this would be a good ritual for anyone to do. Um, you can find a nice, um, area of sunshine throw down your down your yoga mat put yourself two glasses of water one with water in one with no water in um at the head of your yoga mat um and then sit there and feel the heat of the sun on your skin and think about the distance between the sun and you and feel that like that's that's the life force that's the sun once you're in that nice zone feeling a bit tingly stick on your hildegard von bingen spotify playlist Mm. do a few sun salutations so you're stretching out your body you're feeling it throw, flow through your body and then you take your two glasses and you just pour three times every time raising your glass to you know salute the sun pour pour you're seeing the sun go through the water again it's that idea of duality water and fire i, I know the sun's not really fire but metaphorically you know like right. sun and water together and then you consume it i'm fascinated i'm the reason i keep on bringing up commute communion is because i'm fascinated by that idea of consuming the divine yeah. so yeah you've got your water the sun in the water you drink it and it's like the zing um that's that was my at least that was summertime summoning vitality summoning veriditas ritual the ritual i came up with for my client was a much more um indoors affair <laughs> which involved yeah the using that um that classic image of plato's charioteer of you know with harness to eros and thumos and mm. holding those two literally holding two heavyish rocks in his hands to represent the the weight of those two reins in his hands and and um squeezing one squeezing the other squeezing one squeezing the other got some uh, nice uh, 220 beats per minute music that puts you into a bit of a trancey state whilst you're doing this mm. and then and then there's sort of a, a meditation where you really get clear on what your life force wants you to what the move your the accumulation of your eros and your thumos together want you to do and that you consider to be your duty and then you move forward and make a move on it whether it's sending an email or you know going for a run or 
asking a girl out, whatever the thing is that comes to you in that moment. And the rituals on my Substack, if people, that's a very like brief summary. It's like a 15 yeah. minute ritual, I think. Um, and it's just so exciting to, um, to do this work for people and to, because it could, because I'm creating this kind of script and then I give it to them and they make it happen. And, and, and it's, it's, it's very different to like creating this, this sculpture that I showed you because where's mm -hmm. the arts? The art isn't in the Google Doc or on my Substack, but the the art's kind of in them, but it's also kind of in me. It's like in the space between us, and it's just right. it's kind of it's it's kind of weird and and magical. Just the the, yeah. the act of creating art with people like that. Yeah, I love it and so the, much. The art is also rippling out into the future across time, right? Because yes. to the extent that somebody practices the ritual on a regular basis, it's going to transform their relationship with their life and the decisions that they make and their cultivation of their intent exactly and, yeah and we'll put um, and, and i guess that we'll actually put thinking it in the show about notes <laughs> yeah yeah please do i think you i was just thinking about that that's actually like my um my ritual for summoning vitality is having those interactions with people and mm. like creating art with people because it's something i hadn't really done before i i draw i make sculptures i write but it's all like me and the page um but this um what i've been doing um lately is is collaborative art and it's very exciting right. yeah um how do you define thumos and eros oh i don't know um it's really tricky isn't it um i definitely see eros i mean obviously as more sensual as more mm -hmm. immediate in a way i see thumos as relating to will as in mm -hmm. will with a capital W, like as an occultist would say the word will, like true will. Um, and, and, and I see that as coming from uh, the place like uh, of your kind of productivity um, practices, like the that's kind of to harness that. Eros is more disruptive almost um, and unpredictable. Like you can't, I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I said this to, I keep, almost say his name <laughs> but I don't want to I'm sure he's not shy but just you know mm -hmm. uh yeah so I, I said this to my client um that I think as he practices the ritual more he'll probably get more clear on what these two things are because it's one thing just reading but actually feeling into it and having that yeah. sensation of um of feeling into it but I think yeah I think they are both it's me see what's coming to me and this may be completely mental um but I'm, just because you brought up jean viveki earlier like there's something about eros that feels like the arena mm. like eros comes from my body it's where i live it, whereas thumos is all about agency it's like an arrow going mm -hmm. forward it's like active um i don't know how do you define them yeah for me again i i, I think uh propositions will only get us so far. So I, I appreciate your answer and the, the uncertainty in it. And for me, um, Eros is more about desire and mm. uh, has has a, the potential for for merging. So it's like you you want to become a part of something or, or parts becoming whole. And mm. it also feels more interpersonal. Um, to me, it's like associated with with sex and love, but beyond that as well. And also uh, I talked to Zach Stein recently and we talked about cosmoerotic humanism 
and they talk about eros as a a fundamental ontological truth you know kind of like the word for when people have this intuition that love is actually like a real thing that's like not just chemical reactions in the brain they use the word eros for mm. that but that's kind of a digression for me thumos is more um maybe to give people a sense of what what these words are pointing at it's when you have this like fuck it energy and you have some (laughs) some like goal in mind and it's almost like you're running through like a forest a dense forest and like the the trees are like slapping in the face and like cutting your cheek and stuff but you you don't even feel it you know you're just Mm. you're just going and i feel it like uh like in the solar plexus like chest area you know slightly slightly solar plexus and, and and the chest and there's also a little bit of um, cheekiness to it that I don't feel with uh, with Eros. Eros is like uh, I don't know, more, like more romantic. Yeah, I feel like Thumos is like um, I remember uh, having this feeling, and this was when I was really pushing hard on like tidying up my brain and being the best mm. rationalist I could, and I had this desire to shave my head and just to like be completely simple and like clean Mm. and just like moving forward through space with this like clear determination and no fussiness and like Mm -hmm. and then whereas I think of Eros is like oh that would be me wearing like one of those big hippie flowy skirts and like lying back on a bed surrounded by roses it's sensual it's luxuriating it's like and it's interesting we keep coming back to this sense of this this with kind of orbiting around this whole duality thing yeah and the two poles Uh, yeah and I think obviously you need both, and that's 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 why the ritual involves this connection with both. The other cool thing about um, about Thumos that I found out when I was researching to put this ritual together is that um, it's obviously linguistically related to um, the the thymus gland um, mm-hmm. or whatever it is called, um, and and that's that's the same linguistic root as the plant thyme, and so I incorporated mm-hmm. that into the ritual too because one of the one of the powerful things about um, about smells and scent general they're like massive memory triggers and this is what all those like stanislavski actors know like if you Mm. want to get into a certain mind state you can activate mind states like if your mother baked wonderful bread and you want to feel that feeling of being nurtured all you have to do is go huff in your local bakery and you're like oh there i am again (laughs) it's amazing how scent works like that um so to have those like linguistic and sensual links to something tied into the ritual i think I think maybe I should go, like, obviously I did it a couple of times to practice it to make sure it worked, but I think I could probably give you a more coherent answer after practicing that ritual a few more times and, like, yeah, really feeling it. Uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the concept, and I do think um, I do think it's definitely related to Veriditas, which is more of, yes. like, a... Maybe, maybe Veriditas is what you get when you put the two together, I don't know. Yeah, and uh, so I, I just wanted to kind of give people a way to relate to it if, if those words felt like jargon to them. Um, but just to kind of tie it back into this theme, you know, and I, I think I said this before we, we hit record, but I, I really feel like, you know, as I've done more of these podcast episodes, a, a purpose, at least a provisional purpose has emerged for me. It's like, what, what is my intention? What am I trying to do? Um, what gift do I want to give people? And it's, it's really to uh, revitalize and re-enchant them uh, revitalize and re-enchant modern people because I think modern people are playing a playing a hard game where basically like life is very disenchanted and modern life is very sterile and 
uh, it lacks magic, it lacks thumos, it lacks vitality. And more and more, I'm noticing that even whether people know it or not, when they're complaining about aspects of their life, it's all just different, different ways of complaining about their lack of vitality and their lack of love. Like those are like the two mm-hmm. things that that represent like 80% of people's complaints. You know, and they, it might come up in a different way. They might say, I'm not being productive enough. Or they might say that um, they wish they had more time or some of these basic things that we're allowed to say to each other in, in the modern world. But there's like these deeper um, lost, I think, uh, aspects of, of human nature that I want to find a way to to bring back to people and, and re-enchant their relationship with it. And so when we talk about Thumos and Eros, just different different propositions to point to the to that re-enchantment revitalization project. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that that's exactly what I notice in people as well. Um, the other thing I notice is um, a lack of stories. Mm, um, I feel like, us. yeah, a lot of people have had the stories taken away um, because like me, you know, this, they, they found out they weren't true and so they threw them away. Um, and And I think that's a real shame. And I think like, that demand that this the mythos has to be factually accurate is absurd, really, when you think mm-hmm. about it. But because of, because like the way that our culture works and the way that our you know the way we're educated and you know all this stuff, um, we're kind of in this mode of trying to make of anything that isn't true through the yeah through the rationalist epistemology um, doesn't mm-hmm. get to count as true, and and. I get that because that's that's exactly what I was like for a long time, and I do acknowledge that there are dangers of thinking about, you know, um, other epistemic approaches to the world. But this is a modern thing. It's not always been this way. Like, yeah. it's a really modern thing, <laughs> and our brains don't work that way. So you can try and live that way, but if you do try and live that way, you will get this this well. Maybe some people are perfectly happy. I mean, I'm biased because obviously the people coming to me want their lives to be enchanted, otherwise they wouldn't be coming to a ritualist. But um, a lot of us seem to feel this, like, inarticulatable, yeah, see, I told you it was inarticulatable, (laughs) (laughs) yearning for something, you know? Like, um, and we don't even know what it is because we don't have the words or the language or the mythos to link to it. And I often, um, in the situation where I'm asking people, like, you know, is there even a novel or a movie that captures yeah. something? They're like, not really. And because, again, the people that I speak to are often um, are kind of, you know, they're like me. They're kind of like in the kind of rationalist mode and they read nonfiction and they read about philosophy and they read about neuroscience and psychology and all that stuff is fascinating and wonderful. But it doesn't feed this strange part of you that you sometimes wish wasn't there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and, and yeah, it leaves people feeling kind of empty. And it's not, and the problem is that it's it's not as simple as just walking into your local church because you can't go back. Um, or at least yes. I don't think you can go back. I know there are lots of people talking about um, exactly that, about going back to old school the religion. Return. Yeah. Um, for me, as someone who was brought up without religion, I don't, I mean, maybe, you know, who knows, never say never. I would never expect to be where I am today if you asked me five years ago. But I think there's a lot of us where we just can't put ourselves back into that position. And so we need to find something new. Um, But it has to still be fulfilling those very basic needs that religion fulfilled, um, which is like, you know, giving meaning and and structure. And, you know, there's this great quote from that guy, Byung-Yung, 
Byung Chao Hung in The Disappearance yeah. of Rituals. He says rituals render time habitable. And, and, mm. and I remember John Vivekey talking about ritual, described um, the situation that we have currently as a domicide, the destroying of home. So it's like, like mm. finding a way to be at home within ourselves, within our communities, within our ecosystems, all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's important for practical reasons, just like to get on with living as humans in the world, but it's also important in this weird, like, uh, psycho-spiritual way, I guess. Like, yeah. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. You know how in the beginning you were talking about when people are flickering between taking the Eucharist mm. literally versus thinking of it metaphorically? I think uh, I'm noticing a flicker within myself in the way you just described the importance of these practices um, on one end to fulfill deep human needs versus like we're not just instrumentalizing ritual. It's like actually maybe there is something that's much further beyond the mind. You know, like maybe God is real, right? Like maybe that's one way to put it. Yeah. And or, or another example is, I think I could make a pretty good practical case for uh, prayer. And maybe I'll do like a quick version of it now. But if you think of what prayer actually is, like a, the average Christian, if they're praying to God, God is a personification of their highest ideal. Like when people think of Jesus, they're thinking of the perfect person. And they're going to have their own personal interpretation of the perfect person. You know, even the best Christian. Their own personal Christian Jesus, yeah. Yeah. But if they're earnest about it, it's actually going to be a pretty good, like rich proxy for their deepest intuitions of how to live. Because the perfect person is a template for how you ought to live. Mm. And let's say yeah. you talk to that image in your mind. Let's assume that God isn't real. But you, you have a relationship with that image in your mind, this personification of your deepest intuitions for the best way to live. And like multiple times a day, you're, you're communing with that. You're praying with that that image in a, in a way that puts you in a state of humility because it's this transcendent thing that's beyond you, mm. you will live a better life, right? Like it's actually a pretty yeah. good practice. Like I, I think people should do that. You know, they should find their, a way to do that. But that's very different. So that's like coming back to what I was saying before. That's, that's like instrumentalizing religious practices to live better. And it's very different from actually thinking that Jesus is real, actually thinking that that there's a creator who is omniscient and and all powerful and has an interest in your life and there's like a heaven and a hell like really believing in that i think is is still a qualitatively different experience than oh well you know we got these needs and here are ways in which we can you know modern people can find practices to fulfill those needs again so i, I wonder yeah what you and think that's about a, yeah that. yeah well, that's exactly why I think um, radical agnosticism is so important. Yes. Because yeah. otherwise you are just in the, like, um, Alan de Botton, I love him. He wrote this book, Religion for Atheists, where he deconstructs mm -hmm. religion and all the different functions that it fulfills in people's lives. And he's very British, and he's writing to a very British audience. And he's writing to me when it was written. I can't remember when it came out, but when I read it, I was like, this is exactly aimed at a secular society that has left all this stuff behind and is, like, picking through and taking the bits that they want. And it's it's an amazing, beautiful book, but it is very instrumentalized. Um, mm -hmm. There isn't much room for the possibility of something else being there. And if you are going to be like, because I don't know whether this connects quite, but when you were talking about interfacing with your own personal Jesus, like you're interfacing with the model in your head um, that you've made of the possible Jesus, but 
the thing is, that's all you ever interact with, right? Like, I don't interact with you. I interact with a model that I've mm. built based on the stuff that's coming into my eyes, the stuff that's coming to my ears, my yes. my memories of listening to your podcast previously, the fact that I know that you're friends with my friends. Like, that's that's how I know that's what I'm interfacing with you. I'm not interfacing with you. That's impossible. Yeah. So there's something about that that, like, it seems like, oh, there's this huge difference, right, between talking to someone and imagining talking to someone, between talking to God and imagining talking to God as like a, a convenient, um, yeah, desktop for a mm -hmm. bunch of, you know, experiences and ideals and whatnot. Um, but when you actually look at what we're doing when we talk to a real life person, I don't know how different it is. And then that, and then it seems like, oh wait a minute, like that difference that it seems so clear that what if I as an atheist go into I, as an atheist, <laughs> see, I can't, I can't help it. If I go into a church, which I have been doing lately, because that's part of my trying to understand the dying, returning God, uh, and there's this amazing church now, um, which I pass, um, I pop in there and I think about that, the dying, returning God, what that all means and like the history of that and how, like what it means psychologically and all, like, all of that stuff and get really deep into that. Um, and I have kind of like this experience where I've put a face on all those concepts and the face is the face of Dionysus, but it could be the face of Jesus. It could be the face of Sabius. It could be the face of whatever. Um, it doesn't really, Aslan is a good one. <laughs> Let's go mm. with Aslan. It's Aslan's yeah. face. It's that lovely big lion's face. Um, yeah. So is my experience less authentic than someone who is coming in and interfacing with a model that they've built based on the Bible? Like what, what does it mean to believe I don't know. I, now I'm just asking questions. I'm, I think you've, oh, you've broken good. my brain. But what, <laughs> what does it mean to believe in like the literal, like is my belief in the truth of this mythos, this archetype, if you like, if you want to use that language, this, this thing in idea space, why is that less real? Because neither are physical things. Like we can't get a ruler out and measure God and we can't get a ruler out and measure my archetype. Mm -hmm. So I just don't know if the difference is as dramatic as it seems at first inspection. I guess that's what I'm saying. And I think there's something in there's something in religion for atheists and that kind of like, hey, guys, you don't have to give up this stuff. You can use all these tools of religion, rituals of religion and still get the goodies without having to believe anything. I think that might not be true. I think that might be like a little bit of a bait and switch or some kind of like misdirection. I think, I think the real thing is maybe to, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel uncomfortable about that. I feel uncomfortable about, I, and I guess maybe it's to some degree, it's because I don't want to be like the, the kind of like reverse snob who comes in and says, well, what I'm doing is very intellectual mm -hmm. and based on my research of blah, 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 blah. Whereas what you're doing is just naive and straightforward and silly. It's like, right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what this thing is when we're interacting with non-physical stuff, ideas, and well, I haven't. I ha just I haven't read it, but there's a book written by a theologian that's like on my reading list, and it's called "God Is No Thing." It's in "God Is mm -hmm. Nothing." God is no thing, and I was like, oh, there's something in that. There's a, there's an assumption that I'm making about the way religious people think about God that I don't think is true, but I haven't quite figured out why it's not true. 
but yeah. Yeah. I feel like um, there's some sort of two by two lurking in the in the background of this discussion, which maybe I'll think about afterwards and draw it out. But something comes to mind about the way you're speaking is coming from this frame of seeing the world through uh, contingent models that you have to create. Like basically you can't perceive anything unless you make critical assumptions about its form. I can't perceive you without making assumptions yeah. about you. And you're aware of that. You're aware of this experience of, you know, you were always wearing these glasses and like you got to take them off and inspect the lenses. Um, but a, a sincere religious person uh, doesn't do that, right? A sincere religious person is like, no, God is real and God wants these things for me and isn't interacting with their idea of God as an idea. They're actually interacting with God. And I think those mm. two things are, are very different. But where the, this paradox comes up for me is in my, so I have a lot of Christian friends still, and I can actually, you know, this might be sound mean, but I can categorize them based on uh, how like, uh, I, I guess authentic their relationship is with God. And some Christians are more dogmatists. You know, they, they're basically like they read the Bible and they know the Bible and they speak of the propositions in it. Mm. And some of these Christians are like they're they're the real deal. Like they their lives are actually quite dramatic and beautiful lives because of the relationship with God. Now, it could still just be the ideas in their head and God might not be real. But I notice that the difference between these two groups within Christianity, within a frame where presumably you think you're taking this stuff for real, you're not just thinking of it as ideas is again this idea of uh, agnosticism or this like deep deep cognitive humility but within christianity so it's like a christian who is very humble about what god's will is for them is going to have like a more direct relationship with god than someone who's like oh it says in the bible like you know read read this book or, or whatever and so just I don't, this is why this is where my, the edge of my thing right now but it seems like there's some paradoxical relationship between um, the certainty that comes from like a well-grounded mythos that you're no longer debating, like a cosmic narrative that like locks you in. And it's not like mm. just one of the narratives, it's the narrative. And then within that, having an agnosticism towards your concepts of the, of the higher power. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of, yeah, I, this is just, yeah. Like you say, there's a great turn of phrase. It's on the edge of my thinking too. Um, and I don't know how 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 far in that direction I'm going to venture, um, but there's something very important about doubt in Christianity, as I understand it, mm. um, as a like a kind of uh, like it wouldn't be faith if God just came and like shook your hand. And so, the kind of the authentic Christian who's relating to God because they believe that God is real. Like, I don't think they mean real in the same way, like, I mean, when I talk about my desk or my computer, because mm -hmm. otherwise they wouldn't have that, that trust. And that's what faith is, right? It's some kind of yes, trust. I can't yes. remember exactly the quote, trust in things not seen or whatever. Um, so even, I don't know, I, I, I just have this really strong sense, um, and it might just be a mad sense that I have, that this distinction is like a false distinction somehow. And that what mm -hmm. I'm doing actually is really quite similar to what an authentic Christian is doing. Um, but maybe that's, I mean, that might just be me being greedy for that, like what you're talking <laughs> about, that, that wonderful relationship that they have and that experience that they have that I feel like 
doesn't seem immediately accessible to someone who wasn't brought up with it um, or with, with anything like that, with the mythos. Because um, I'm just sort of like, uh, you know, collaging my own strange yeah, uh, yeah. set of practices to define my life and define my experience. Like you say, putting on different glasses, different lenses. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sure there are some people who just believe God is literally like a man floating around in the sky. But I think mm -hmm. the vast majority of Christians probably have a much more like uh, agnostic perspective than they'd maybe like, even they would probably just wouldn't use that word. But yeah. yeah, again, back to that, the person drinking the Eucharist, you know? Yes. And, yeah. and oscillating. Almost like, like, what would faith be if there was no doubt in it? Yeah. Well, I think... Um, I'd love to hear you chatting away to one of your Christian friends about this. This would be fascinating. Yeah. You should get them on the podcast. Yeah, and a few specific people started popping to my head, um, wondering how they'll react to this. Um, but just to kind of close this chapter, and then I have a couple follow-ups or uh, questions to some of the stuff we were talking about before. Um, it seems like, and this is more like an intuitive thing that came up for me right now, it seems like the key ingredient is this state of uh, deep humility you know when you when you're a radical agnostic that you're cognitively humble and then uh, the christian who's like ready to receive god's will when they're praying and they're not making presumptions based on their reading of the old testament mm. or something like that and i think those are the authentic christians they're also radically humble in the face of, of the transcendent yeah. in the face of the cosmos so yeah. um i want to uh i want to ask um maybe as we bring this a little bit to close, something that could be quite practical for people. Um, there, so I had, a, I had a conversation with Layman Pascal about uh, different practices, and we talked about how the will is kind of a proto-capacity that you need before you start developing other capacities. Like mm. you need some level of intentionality in order to even like show up and practice other things or even to take one of Rebecca Fox's rituals and actually do them. Yeah. And so we were talking about will building and what sort of practices, because that might be the highest leverage thing to start with, right? Like how, if I don't yeah. have much of a will, like how do I, how do I cultivate one? And I want to share what he said. Um, and I want to hear your personal take on this because I feel like it's going to be related to some of the stuff you do. Um, he said the best way to build your will is to actually use your consciousness to act as like an intermediary or or uh, actually the, the master and the emissary to use ian mcgillchrist's yeah. terms uh, between your unconscious and the real world so uh, a practical version of this is uh, you have a dream some somebody shows up in that dream like a friend now you're conscious and you're awake from the dream go talk to that friend you know like something your unconscious gave you a signal and now there's a chance for you to act on that and it's just a whim. And you call this whim fulfillment. Like these whims emerge and then you can ignore them completely. And that's the whole point. They're, they're, they don't have powerful imperatives. They're just like, oh, you could do this. You could not do this. Um, and then you go act on that will. And just to spell this out for people, this cultivates your, your will because you're, you're integrating these parts of yourself. Like there's this part of yourself that's a mystery. Again, like remain agnostic and humble towards what it is. Maybe it's just the right brain. Or maybe it's the anima, or maybe it's the collective unconscious. Maybe it's it's the way God speaks to humans. Who knows, right? But there's this part of you that's unconscious that pops up in interesting ways throughout your life, like through dreams, through synchronicities, through weird feelings, 
maybe through the experience of sacredness that you were describing. Mm-hmm. And often it has like a very mild, like whispering injunction that the conscious part of you can do something with. The more you listen to that, the more you act, the more you cultivate a will that's an integration of these two parts. And that actually gives you like this, um, and to give people a sense of the will, it's like when you're, when you're super tired, uh, you haven't eaten well, um, your physiology is not in a good place at all, but you still have thumos, you know, you're still like going towards like this vision of the future that is inspiring mm-hmm. to you. And somehow you have the capacity to do that. Um, so yeah, I'll just, I'll just leave you to, to respond to that. And actually, if I have a specific question, it's, are there any rituals that, um, help with connecting to that subconscious part of yourself specifically? Well, I mean, definitely, uh, dream, keeping a dream journal. It's just going in now to what I consider to be the dark half of the year, which is past the equinox, the autumn equinox. Um, so mm. the nights are longer than the days. And for me, I'm one of the things I'm interested in, in ritual is the concept of the liturgical year. So you know, like marking time by having certain, you know, a certain way that you conduct yourself at different times of the year. Um, and the way I conduct myself <laughs> around this time of the year is um, I pay way more attention to my dreams because, you know, there's more night mm-hmm. than day. It just seems like weirdly logical to go in this this direction. And yeah. so, um, I, and, and obviously, I, I mean, anyone who's interested in um, dream stuff knows this, um, but if you, when you wake up, you just write down literally any word that comes into your head and you do that every night, eventually you've got like a torrent and it gets outrageous. And by the time you get mm-hmm. around to the spring equinox, you're like, your life is just <laughs> like you're writing you down. You inbox of down. things to do. Yeah, I write them down longhand, um, just on a pad by my bed. And then um, later, usually on a Sunday, I'll sit down and like transcribe any of them that were halfway decent and then properly analyze mm-hmm. them and look through for symbols and stuff. And I use them as... Um, as a generator machine it's like my little doorway into chaos and as you say who knows yeah. what that is um what's going on in there but as an artist that's insanely useful because it's just popping up these strange images and what's very cool is you get this feedback loop because if you start um obsessively some would say recording your dreams and then recording recurring symbols in your dreams So, Mm -hmm. for example, snakes come up a lot in my dreams. Snakes is a classic dream symbol. So I've got that index. I've got it written down in the front of my book. And then I have all the incidents of dreams. And every time I have a dream about a snake, I go back and read the other dreams of snakes. Mm. So I could put it in that narrative and understand, understand slash create like the story of the snakes and why they're coming to me in my dreams. And one of the kind of like things that really like made that practice make sense, because I was just doing it as like an experiment, really. Um, and as as an opportunity for like um, for artistic development, um, but what really kind of made that into something that was starting to affect my life was creating rituals from my dreams. Um, mm-hmm. The the best sort of example I have is actually my friend, the seeker from my old podcast, the seeker and the skeptic. Mm-hmm. She turns up in my dreams a lot. She's like my other. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a, she's like represent. I think she rep. <laughs> I don't know how she feel about this, but I think she represents um, like uh, the, a certain aspect of me, the more seeker, the more like esoteric aspect of me when she turns off in my dreams. Um, so we're at a party in this dream and um, she, for a joke, scoops out one of my eyes and then mm. she holds out to me in her hands three eyes. I think there was a green one, a blue one and a red one. And she's wow. like, you can put one of these in, it'll be funny. Like, um, 
So they, they, obviously, like that, I mean, obvious, obviously, that's all about changing <laughs> perspectives and seeing through different lenses, blah, 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 blah. But, um, and so I could have just left it there and said, oh, that's an interest. Thank you. Thank you, subconscious. What an interesting insight. But being not one to leave things there anymore, <laughs> I was like, great, I'm going to go find um, three pebbles and paint them to look like eyeballs. And then I'm going to summon her around and we're going to reenact the dream. And doing oh, it, like, I don't know if I got any, like, extra facts, cognitive insight that I can articulate to you out of my mouth. But I'm telling you, stuff switched around in here. And that, yeah. um, like, like you making that conduit between the dream self and the waking self and strengthening it, not just through analysis, because that's obviously that's what's tempting to do, just to write and then refer to your, you know, your notes, your or your Jungian reference books or whatever, um, which are beautiful. And I love them, but um, but to actually take it into the physical world and bring that person and and tell them the dream and then tell them what you want to do and yeah. have something that's close to being. I, it's it's again it's this Viveki's PPPP thing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? he's just trying to yeah, get all the yeah. P's in there. Get all the P's. Um, I don't know if yeah, that really answers my your friend, question about uh, will building, but yeah. My my friend Jordan, he, uh, he's he's quite uh, he's quite a dreamer. Like he has like very intense mm -hmm. dreams, and he's very literate on this whole uh, dream analysis stuff. And he always says, dream analysis is overrated. Dream integration is where it's at. And you can get mm, lost in analysis, yeah. right? You can ask all these questions like, oh, what did it mean? But it can be very simple to just follow the whim and integrate it. So yes. you, like what you did was a very simple way to explore it. Like who knows what the eyes really mean, but this, it, that's actually, you're getting more out of doing that ritual with the stones than you would by like, you know, journaling and figuring out what the, what the eyes really mean. Or like a very simple thing is if you have a dream and somebody's in it, go talk to them in the real world. Or I did this thing and I think I mentioned it on the podcast with, with Lehman. I had a dream that I was back in, uh, in Edinburgh and I, I was telling you, I lived in Edinburgh for a year. A, a number of years after, I had this really intense dream where I was back and I was like, that was my life again. I was walking the cobblestones and all this stuff and all my friends were there. And uh, it felt like, um, like days. Like it was one of those dreams that just felt like my sense of time was off. And then when I yeah, woke up, so I felt weird. so disoriented about where, I, where I'm at. Like I'm like, wait, do I, act, I don't live in the UK. I live in North America and like all this stuff. And then I, I checked my phone and I had a... Uh, an email with just one one new email and it was a a flight deal from google flights saying flights from toronto to edinburgh were like 50 percent off and i was wow. like, I, I just had this dream there's a synchronicity <laughs> so i i just i was like well i gotta buy the ticket and like that's an integration right i just i bought the ticket mm. and then this is like a whole other conversation but what what ensued on that trip was the greatest density of meaningful synchronicities i've ever had in my life like and that's what kind of converted me into like a full-blown LARPer of, uh, of like, uh, you know, the spiritual realm and everything. It was honestly insane. So I really recommend that to people. Like if you have these like weird little whims, um, I, I frame it as will building because I think that's a better gateway for people into this stuff. And it's a weird answer to the question of will building. Like people think, oh, to get more willpower, you know, do like Navy SEAL activities and stuff or do mm -hmm. just like traditional productivity work. But when you say, oh, actually listen to your subconscious, uh, understand what your dreams are all about and follow your synchronicities. That's such an unconventional answer. And it also brings like kind of the more Apollonian types into this realm of like the, the Dionysian mystery. So it's yeah, not, it doesn't necessarily have to give you will, but 
but it will, I think. Mm. Yeah. I, I, it makes me think of, are you familiar with the, um, the whole uh, Holy Guardian Angel thing? Uh, I've this, heard the term, but I, I'm not sure. It's like this, it's from occultism, and I'm familiar with it because um, one of the many things we looked into was Thelema, which is the religion that Alistair Crowley um, invented. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this, I think it's supposed to take six months, but now there's some debate, and maybe it's nine, it's from an old grimoire, where um, you get up every morning and go to a shed that you've built to specific proportions in your garden with an altar that you've set up specifically with all like particular incense and particular ritual tools and stuff and basically um pray slash visualize slash evoke um this being that they refer to as the hda or holy guardian angel but you could call it a diamond whatever Mm. um and they do this at dawn and dusk um and then there it becomes as you carry on throughout this six to nine month period you start at the spring equinox i believe because this it's a very complex involved ancient ritual but the whole point is to create this character or to discover this character depending on your perspective who who is the um the the i was gonna say physical manifestation but the manifestation of your true will and, mm-hmm. and to create that connection between you and it, or you and him, or you and her, or whatever. Um, and and then they will tell you what to do. Mm. And then you do it. Um, right. And I like, I love it because it's so, I love the involvedness of it. I love the discipline it would take to do it. And I also love it because it reminds me so much of what you do in productivity, in that it's like stripping everything back to find your purpose and then I mean, they go to the extent of putting a face on it, but it's basically the same thing. And then right. letting that speak through you instead of um, making, you know, making decisions. Oh, shall I, shall I drink this coffee or not? I don't know. I don't know. Like that decision's already been made because you're already in the groove of your true will following what the directions that have been given to you by this, this thing, which they would call the HGA. Some people might call the diamond and some people might just call purpose or I don't know, like mm-hmm. whatever. Um, source so to find it yeah to find that thing to find that source and then like different people will interact with it in different ways this is way off the deep end compared to what you're suggesting yours is like a great like hey rationalists come play in the shallow end and I'm like no come on in the deep end (laughs) (laughs) let's summon angels guys (laughs) but yeah um, I think it's fascinating I think it's really interesting to see how different um different people coming from completely different perspectives are, are trying to solve the same problem, which is, yeah, how, how do we move forward in life in a way that feels authentic and takes us where we want to go? That's basically it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm just, I just love all that. I'm a sucker for all the bells and whistles. So, uh, yeah. But I don't think I'll ever do the Rite of Abrahalem because it requires chastity for like three months of those nine months. So. Oh, yeah, fuck that. I don't <laughs> <laughs> but you can see why that would work, right? Because you're yeah. invested. You're very invested. Yeah, <laughs> you will bring up as a... parts of yourself that, and it, again, that, that theme of humility, like discipline like that requires a certain humility and patience. Yeah. And that'll that'll bring forth parts of yourself, even if it's like purely just a, a you know, a byproduct of the mind, you know, going through all these things, these parts of yourself will come forward that previously you didn't have a connection with. I think it's a really um, important aspect of ritual that it costs something. But you, yeah, there is effort sacrifice. involved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It can't just... 
because um, yeah, I often have these conversations with people um, about the things that I'm asking them to do, and they're like, "Well, that sounds difficult." I'm like, "Yeah, <laughs> you want to get something good out expect? of the end? <laughs> yeah, it might be a little bit difficult." Yeah. So, yeah. so this brings me to uh, my final question, and I'm now like a little bit nervous about asking it now, based on what you just said. But um, shall we do a ritual? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Um, so yeah, this this will cost you something. Um, this uh, so the ritual I've kind of got queued up to go because uh, I suspected you might ask this question. Um, the cost is embarrassment potentially. Mm. Um, and a weird, like, belief-bending situation, especially for you as a former Christian. So that's, mm. like, your, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. That's uh, Ticket a heads price. up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and it's, um, it's an exorcism, uh, mm -hmm. an exorcism of uh, anything that is, you know, gunky and irritable and, like... You know, nothing, don't go for anything huge, um, but anything that you just want to get rid of. And okay, so I've got this queued up, so I'll just, I'll just go straight into it. Um, should I just go straight into it? I'm down to, to see what you have in store. I think I'm going to get you out of my headphones now. Let's see how this works. Yeah, we're back. I'm really out of breath now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't sure if my brother was home, so I was like, oh, fuck it. I just got to deal with this. If he, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit weird. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of next level weirdness. Um, this is the yeah. first um, ritual that I put out on my Substack, um, And it was kind of like deliberately trying to be a little bit provocative to, mm -hmm. to, my, to my former compatriots in the atheist world, because my perspective, as we just discussed, has changed. And I actually think that the Archangel Michael is a really useful uh, thing to hang your hat on mm. if you need to get rid of some of that. And that's the classic prayer that's used in at least all the movies about exorcism that I've seen, mm. which is my experience with Catholicism, is uh, I have attended the occasional service but mainly it's through movies. And I think that's true of a lot of um, people. So I think that that prayer has a strong resonance, even if you've never used it in seriousness in, in, as an authentic Christian. I think that prayer still has power because of the way it's been used in media. Um, and it would be interesting, actually, to because I haven't shared this that video publicly. Um, it would be interesting to hear Christians' perspectives on that, on one... Is that blasphemy? Right. Two, if not, would it? Does it? Do they believe that it would work in the same way as if they were saying it? Because I, I'm putting myself in that belief space when I say those words, mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that's good enough. Uh, but combined with the physical effects of working up a sweat and that strange arm lifting trick, um, yes. Yeah, and, I like and it. being it, in the I, threshold, the doorway. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the liminal, it's a space. liminal space. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> love me some liminal spaces. Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, I'm so glad that you went along with that. <laughs> yeah, thank thank you so much for that, and uh, and thank you so much for this conversation today. I, I loved it. Thank you too. It's been really fun. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the metagame, 
it would really help a lot if you wrote a review on Apple Podcasts. Apparently that's really useful for getting the word out. And also uh, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter if you have any feedback. Thank you.